You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. He's a key Democrat on Capitol Hill, and he may be close to pushing the Senate towards passage of an expansion of the child tax credit. In this episode, Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado joins Washington Post Live to explain why he views this as a high legislative priority. Let's listen. Hi there, and welcome to the Washington Post Live. I'm Jackie Alimany, a congressional correspondent and author of the Washington Post early morning newsletter, Power Up. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. My guest is an influential Democrat on Capitol Hill, Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Senator Bennett. Thanks for making the time for us. Thanks, Jackie. It's great to be with you. I know it's uh, a big day for you and for a lot millions of Americans across the country today. You have been a passionate advocate for expanding and eventually making permanent the child tax credit, which was expanded in President Biden's American Rescue Plan. It was a key issue you ran on in your in your very brief presidential campaign in 2020, um, but it's an issue that you've been passionate about since 2015, really. Today is the date that those first payments are gonna go out to 39 million families. How do you think this is going to help those families and, and 65 million children in the country? Well, it, I, it starts with me because I was the superintendent of the Denver Public Schools and most of the kids there are kids living in poverty. and. And their parents are often working two and three jobs. No matter what they do, they can't get their kids out of poverty. Same is true with people I've met all across my state over the last 10 years who say we're working really hard. No matter what we do, we can't afford some combination of housing, health care, higher education, or early childhood education. We can't save. you know. And so I think that that's all an anecdotal reflection of an economy that for 50 years has worked really well for the top 10% of Americans, but hasn't worked well for nine out of 10 Americans. So I think families are gonna have a, an opportunity now to get a little bit of help at the end of the month to relieve the pressure, to relieve the burden, to pay their rent, to buy some groceries, maybe buy some daycare so they can stay at work and earn a little bit more. Um, obviously what we really have to do is create an economy that when it grows, works for everybody, not just the people at the very top. But I think this is a very big step forward. And as a result of what Joe Biden has done, we're going to cut childhood poverty in this country this year, almost in half. Uh, you know, this for our viewers who are not quite aware of how the child tax credit is um, distributed, it's done by the IRS. And it's a, a pretty big lift for them to distribute these direct cash payments to millions of households. They were able to do it pretty successfully, uh, you know, over the past year and a half during the pandemic, but there are still people who are waiting for their economic impact payments um, due to issues the IRS has had in reaching these non-filers and really potentially highest need populations. We've already heard some reports today of some issues, especially since the IRS's portal to getting these payments is not mobile friendly and is only in English. Are you in touch with the IRS about these potential problems and are you confident they're going to be able to smooth them out? Yeah, I absolutely am. I mean, having lived through the healthcare website rollout, uh, my antenna are, are very much up in terms of implementation. And I think the IRS has come a long way. You know, six months ago or a year ago, we were being told we can't even do monthly payments. It's impossible for us to do. And today, you know, I think roughly 85% of the people that were eligible, maybe even more than that, received direct deposits of a monthly check. Now, as you point out, there, there are people that don't file 
income tax returns, who are some of the poorest people in the country, and we're going to have to go after them. The IRS is going to, I mean, in the sense of making sure they know they're eligible for the child tax credit, the IRS is going to do its work uh, on the website. They're going to improve the website. I, I, I'm sure of that. But my office, for example, is working with 100 organizations across the state of Colorado to make sure that we get to the, the people of the highest need and get them signed up. The good news is that if they're signed up later, um, uh, their payment is still going to be retroactive uh, to this week in July. But this is an unfinished piece of business that we have to finish. Have you gotten any indication from the IRS what sorts of changes they'll be making and, and how quickly they can execute those? Uh, uh, one, one is translating the, the website into Spanish, which is a very important for families in my state uh, and across the country. They also are going to make it more user-friendly uh, uh, as well. And I think there are going to be, like with anything new, different iterations of the pr project until they until hopefully they perfect it. In the meantime, people should go to irs.gov and, and, and click on the child tax credit uh, so they can make sure they're entering, they're, they're getting into the process. And I'd love for you to bring us up to date on where negotiations stand right now about making this permanent, this, this child tax credit expansion, which you've called for. Yeah, I mean, I obviously think we should make it permanent because I, the United States is, I think, 38th out of 41 industrialized countries in terms of our child poverty rate. We have one of the highest in the industrialized world. Our, 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 our biggest, uh, uh, our, our, our poorest population in America are our kids. Uh, and so I think we should make it permanent. And, uh, and in, in, we're in the middle of a negotiation right now to see what we can get done in the context of the $3.5 trillion package that uh, Joe Biden is now trying to pass through the Congress. And I'm going to fight for as many years as we can now, and then we'll come back and come back and come back until it's permanent. I, I do think that once the American people have a sense of how meaningful this benefit is to their kids, and, and by the way, roughly 90% of America's kids are going to benefit from this, it's going to be very hard for Congress to take it away. And there are economists who are, are critics of the expansion and believe that it will ultimately disincentivize work uh, and, and people getting back to, to work post-pandemic. I'm wondering, you know, what metrics you are closely looking at as this expansion is implemented uh, in terms of building your argument for why it should be made permanent. Yeah, well, the data, I think the data in, in, in Europe and the data in Canada where folks have had child allowances like this for quite some time, and by the way, more generous than the one that we're talking about here, what they have are higher workforce participation rates than we have in our country. And that makes a lot of sense to me because we have made it so hard, especially for poor people, to work and take care of kids. We have so little social safety net that that often, you know, there is no child care. And often, you know, if a car gets broken, you can't get it fixed and therefore you can't get back to work. So I'm going to look at these workforce participation rates extremely closely. I don't think we're going to know the answer for some time. But if we, if the country acts like these other countries, um, I think we're going to see that this is a pro-work initiative. And it's not designed in a way like some prior uh, efforts have been designed in, in a way that disincentivizes work. $250 or $300 per, per month per kid is not going to stop people from working. 
And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen just moments ago told NPR in an interview uh, that she believed that America should, the federal government should make this a, um, a, a permanent feature. You want to make it permanent. President Biden and his initial American Families Plan blueprint had pledged to extend it for five more years. But a senior administration official told reporters this week that the goal is to make it permanent. The president today called it transformative. Uh, where, what are your colleagues saying about this? How does it fit into these negotiations that are going on right now as, as we speak? Well, Chuck Schumer has said it should be permanent. Nancy Pelosi has said it should be permanent. We've had 41 members of my caucus sign a letter to the president saying it should be permanent. Um, and we're just in a we're in a negotiation with the other priorities that uh, the president and other colleagues want, and also with the reconciliation rules, which may uh, have something to say about what this ultimately gets to. My view is uh, this is about $100 billion a year that Columbia University has said would pay back an annual dividend of eight times because the cost of poverty, especially among children, is so high. It's roughly a trillion dollars a year. So what we're saying now is instead of paying the, the terrible, terrible societal costs on the back end and economic costs of mitigating for childhood poverty, let's um, let's try to end it and, and cut it in half in, in this time. So I really can't answer your question except to say we're fighting uh, to make it as, as permanent as we can. And uh, and and I believe ultimately it will be permanent, and the American people who, who who very strongly support this policy will demand that it become permanent. Will you accept the bill if it is not made permanent? Uh, I don't want to negotiate today with with you, but there are I I'm going to do as as I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it's extended for as long as it can be. Do you believe President Biden's doing enough to make this permanent? I know he's obviously juggling several he's, different yeah, I'd like to make it permanent, but he's juggling a million a million things as well. And and I understand that and I appreciate that. And I, I think um, this is going to be a very important part of this recovery, not recovery package, this investment in America. Yeah, well, you know, about this this three point five trillion dollar budget reconciliation deal, um, more broadly speaking, that is currently being hashed out by, by you and your colleagues. Um, I'm wondering what are the biggest, most outstanding issues that Democrats are, are working out right now? Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer just uh, told reporters a short while ago that, you know, Democrats had missed the deadline to sort of finalize this blueprint and will now um, vote on it next week. Uh, what are, are the lingering problems here and in, in issues of disagreement? Well, in terms of the $3.5 trillion bill or the bipartisan yeah, bill? Yeah, I guess, I guess both bills are both. facing some roadblocks yeah, right I mean, now. Yeah, they're, the they're both really interesting to talk about. I mean, they're really, it's just a really interesting moment to be in D.C. On the bipartisan bill, what's interesting to me about that is that, you know, I'm glad we have it. I hope we get it done. I, 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 I think it'd be great if we do. Um, it, uh, the limitations on, on bipartisan work are that the Republicans in Washington are unwilling to reverse any of Donald Trump's tax cuts for uh, the wealthiest Americans. I don't understand it. I, I cannot understand how people can vote for the Trump tax cuts for the richest Americans and vote against the child tax credit. But that's what you know Republicans in the Senate have done over and over again. It, it, it makes little sense to me. And it means that 
it makes it hard for them to participate in the more meaningful package because if they if they vote to 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 raise revenue from Donald Trump's signature achievement, uh, he's going to go after them. I think that's very unfortunate. But in the in that context, I hope that the Republicans that have been working on this bill hang in there, and I hope they support it, and I hope they can get it across the finish line. On the broader package, we had a very good week this year. Uh, th we had a very good week this week with the, the president coming to the Democratic caucus. I think there's, you know, there's a general um, uh, view that uh, we're heading in the right direction, that the components make sense, that the size makes sense. I know there will be uh, negotiations on on all of it because we need 50 votes plus one uh, to get it across the finish line. But I think we're starting from a from a very po positive place, and and even a guy like Joe Manchin, I think you know, is willing to give this bill a, a hard look. Although Senator Manchin just came out and told reporters yesterday that he was very, very disturbed by the climate provisions in the bill that he's seen so far that he believes would eliminate fossil fuels. Uh, is a reconciliation package that does not phase out the use of fossil fuels acceptable to you? I think we need a reconciliation package that it has extremely strong climate uh, provisions. My state and the Rocky Mountain West is facing profound, profound economic challenges at this point because of wildfire uh, that is the result of climate change. And we don't have time to screw around with this anymore. So I don't know what the final scope of this is going to be, but I hope that it will be extremely ambitious in its climate goals. It does seem like these climate provisions have the potential to tank the deal as the bipartisan deal had stripped, had been stripped completely of these provisions. And uh, we've heard congressional progressive, the Congressional Progressive Caucus say that they uh, won't accept something that isn't aggressive enough on climate. What are those discussions looking like right now internally in the Senate? You know, one thing that I think has changed, uh, Jackie, is there's a more of an understanding than than there used to be here about how important it is to support communities that may have been reliant for many years on fossil fuel extraction and who are going to be facing a transition as we move to a, an economy that's based on uh, uh, cleaner energy. That I think that's been treated like an afterthought for too long, and uh, and and we need to put folks you know, that are having this transition at the center of the discussion. So when you look at the billions of dollars that will be spent on forestry, that is a, a bill that I have had and that is included in the infrastructure package, or you look at the cleanup of orphaned wells across the country that's going to be enormously expensive and create a tremendous number of high-paying jobs uh, in the United States, you know, these are the kind of provisions that I think can, can actually give people in in commu transitioning communities hope that there's going to be a future for them on the other side. If we skip over that step, uh, uh, it's going to be hard for us to be successful passing passing a bill. And and I and I just I just think people are focused on that in ways that they have not been. They've sort of given lip service to the idea that, you know, we have to handle these transitions. Part of it is the recognition that, you know, a lot of the discussion about trade uh, ignored the, the the pockets of America that were left behind uh, by by our the trade policies we pursued. We can't do that again with this climate policy. 
And there, and I think it's there that we can find, hopefully, we'll be able to find common cause with somebody like Joe Manchin, who represents, you know, the state of West Virginia in the Senate. Although it is worth noting, you do fall into that bracket of moderate Democrat. I know centrist and moderate Democrats have taken a, a lot of heat from um, progressives and activists lately, but uh, have you specifically been able to speak to Senator Manchin about this issue? I, I, I imagine you're more persuasive perhaps than um, than a, someone who is, you know, doesn't fall into the moderate bucket. Yeah. I mean, on that score, let me just say that we, again, we just passed the child tax credit, which I wrote, which is going to cut childhood poverty by 50%. That's the most progressive tax policy that's been passed in this country in decades. So you can call me whatever label you want, but uh, it's hard to not think of that as progressive. And I do, uh, I am able to talk to Joe Manch, just like I could talk to anybody in the caucus. And, uh, and, and I know that his concern is the people that he represents and what their economic future is going to look like. And I view that as a completely legitimate concern and one that um, we should find ways of solving for, as I said uh, earlier. And, and before we move on um, from infrastructure, are, are you concerned that President Biden is going to fall short of achieving some of his ambitious domestic and, and quite frankly, international climate goals if these measures are not included in the reconciliation package? Yeah, I don't think we can. I don't think we I don't think we can pass a reconciliation package that does not have ambitious climate policy in it, very ambitious climate policy in it. And I don't think we should pass a uh, reconciliation package that has ambitious, that doesn't have ambitious climate policy in it. And I want to ask you about another uh, breaking news item. This morning, Justice Stephen Breyer um, gave an interview with CNN where he said he has not decided when he's going to retire and has been gratified with his new role as a senior liberal on the bench. Uh, are you interested in, in seeing Justice Breyer leave the bench uh, before 2022 midterms while Democrats uh, retain their one vote advantage? I am. Uh, that is a question that is completely up to Justice Breyer. And I think if I had a point of view about it, um, I, I don't think it would help him make whatever decision he's trying to make. Uh, and I want to get to a, um, a question from someone in our audience, a, a native Coloradan, um, Doanne Houghton from Colorado. She asks, is it possible for the Senate to have something like the House's Problem Solvers Caucus, which is bipartisan? I, I think it's a great question. I mean, I, I look for every opportunity to work. I'm not surprised that question came from Colorado because we're a third Democratic, a third Republican, and a third independent, and people want us working together. And uh, and I look for every opportunity to do that uh, with people from the other side of the aisle. I do think we, and and and, it, and, it, and yeah, it'd be possible to have a problem solvers caucus over here. We, we have not had one yet. Um, the we are having a difficulty right now to be and to be perfectly honest with my friend from Colorado, and that is that, you know, when my friend and he is my friend Rob Portman, for example, can't run for re-election, a Republican from Ohio can't really run for re-election because he'll be beaten by a Trump acolyte or you know anti somebody who believes in the anti-democratic philosophy that uh, Donald Trump has has spewed. 
that becomes enormously challenging. It makes it very hard to get bipartisan stuff done uh, in the Senate. We always have to keep trying to do it. And in my view, Democrats also have to work very hard to try to win elections like that Ohio election, because the last thing we need in America is another Trump uh, acolyte in the United States Senate. And as long as he's setting the agenda for the National Republican Party, it's going to be really challenging for our democracy to function. And that's why I think it is so important for every American to be involved in, the, in, in this process, for every American to vote, for every American to make sure they're reading newspapers and following the news closely so that we can actually take the democracy back and make it stronger for our, for our kids and for our grandkids. There, we, we, we had a near-death experience in our democracy, not just on January 6th, but during the four years that Donald Trump was president. And it shows how fragile this place really is. It's going to take every single one of us, I think, um, to turn something over to our kids that we can be proud of. Is that what Senator Portman has communicated to you, that the reason that he's not running is because he never, he he's losing he to never, a Trump Republican? He never said it to me, but I, I've, I've made my own judgment about that. You, on that note, you recently told donors at a virtual rally for your re-election bid, um, you're running next year for your third full term as senator, uh, that Democrats have a, quote, moral responsibility to keep control of the Senate in 2022. What did you mean by that? I believe that. I really believe that. I don't, I don't think, for me, it's not about Democrats. You know, as you pointed out, I'm not the most partisan Democrat in the world. For me, it's about the democracy. And if the choice is between more Trump uh, uh, more Trump supporters or more Trump yes people uh, and our democracy, then I think that the Democratic Party has a moral obligation to win in these states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, Ohio. And what that means for the party is that we need to speak to people uh, uh, in the middle of the country, uh, in, in places between the mountain ranges on the east and west coast. And my state is one of those places. And I think the way we meet people there is with an economic message like the child tax credit, where 90% of America's kids are going to benefit. We're going to cut childhood poverty in half, and we're going to give people a, a benefit that they can use on a monthly basis to help keep the lights on in their house. And, and when we're running uh, uh, on a platform where we've cut taxes for working people and for middle class people, and the American people know that the Republicans, when George Bush was president, when Donald Trump was president, cut taxes mostly and almost only for the for the richest Americans. They're going to have a choice to make, which is, you know, who's on their side. And I think that's really, really important, not for Demo the Democratic Party's electoral function fortunes, but for our country so that the American people can see that democracy can work, that they can receive a benefit from democracy and have a reason to believe in the democracy and want to make their voices heard in elections. That's the alternative to uh, a politics based on division and hatred and, and voter suppression, which is what Donald Trump has offered us. But why do you think then that some other moderate Democrats who are vulnerable incumbents and up for re-election next year are, are not completely in, on board with and in favor of embracing every aspect of, of Joe Biden's agenda, especially when it comes to federal spending as, as fresh concerns about inflation are, are rising. 
Well, I think they're worried about, you know, they've got an analysis they're doing in their states. I'm up for election this year um, uh, myself, so uh, it's not like I never, you know, think about that. Uh, but I but I really believe this is a um, this is an, an incredibly significant inflection point in our democracy's history. And when I look at the fact that, um, you know, since 2001, before we did what we did on the child tax credit, Washington, D.C. cut taxes by five trillion dollars, almost all of it going to the wealthiest people in America. When I consider the fact that Washington led us in, and, and kept us in two wars in the Middle East that lasted for 20 years, where we lost thousands of lives and spent five point six trillion dollars uh, uh, over that 20 years in those wars. It seems to me that uh, an investment in our in our people and an investment in our infrastructure is long overdue and is also essential, I think, to giving people faith in the democracy working. So I'm confident that at the end of this negotiation, the end of this process, we're going to join together on a bill that's ambitious, that's meaningful to the American people, uh, and, that, and that begins to restore people's faith that their exercise in self-government actually is an exercise in self-government, not an exercise in government for lobbyists or for special interests. And we've so far spent the majority of our conversation talking about uh, pieces of legislation that have been passed with single party support through this reconciliation process. If President Biden and congressional Democrats can't point to any major pieces of bipartisan legislation passed, uh, does that make the case for Democrats going into 2022 harder? Well, first of all, I would say that it'd be nice to pass a bipartisan infrastructure bill. We passed the uh, Endless Frontiers Act, which is the China bill, which I think could be really meaningful. That's an, an enormous investment to make sure that we actually have a semiconductor industry here. And I mean, there are other pieces of that. So it's not as if there's no bipartisan work going on. But I also think people out in the country, in my state, which again is a third, a third, a third, understand that there is something broken in the National Republican Party. They understand that there's something broken in the obstruction that Mitch McConnell represents. So where I think Joe Biden needs to perform here is to make sure that he is making significant investments in rural and red parts of this country, in rural broadband, in rural uh, uh, in, in the national forests I mentioned earlier, rural hospitals, in rural schools, uh, and in, in many rural areas, the, the biggest beneficiaries, of, uh, in many states, the biggest beneficiaries of the child tax credit are going to be people living in rural areas. So the president can go to these red communities and sit down with the farmers and ranchers there and ask them to bring their calculators with them and show them uh, what the benefits are that he's been able to deliver to them compared to the benefits Donald Trump claimed he delivered for them, but never actually did. That comparison, I think, will be utterly, utterly defeating for Donald Trump and for people in the National Republican Party who want to continue to hew to his view of the world. And it's my hope, I say this again as somebody who represents a swing state, it's my hope that there comes a time when Washington Republicans begin to reflect the voices that I hear in, um, in, in rural red communities of my state who are desperate uh, to have markets for their agricultural products, who are desperate 
to have uh, schools that their kids can go to who are desperate to have broadband and, and other investment in their communities. And, and by the way, I think you will see an outpouring of support from local Republican mayors and county commissioners for this infrastructure bill that, um, that we end up passing. There are a number of other Democratic priorities that are currently in uh, or heading to the Senate graveyard uh, from police reform to the For the People bill, a sweeping voting rights bill. Um, where do you stand on those in terms of uh, getting rid of the filibuster in order to push those through? Well, I, I view the filibuster as, as a tool of an absolute abuse of the democracy by Mitch McConnell. That's what it is now. That's what that that's what we're dealing with, and we should change it. You know, we should reform it. We should make the Senate work better. The Senate has to be put in a place where, in the end, the majority is able to make a decision, and along the way, the minority is able to have a profound effect on what the legislation looks like. That is what the Senate is was designed to do. That's what it's supposed to do. Mitch McConnell's bastardization of the of the filibuster has made it impossible for us to do it. So I think that we should when you make say change. reform. What what exactly do you mean? Well, I don't know what exactly it should be because I don't know what's going to get 51 votes uh, in the Senate to do it. But whatever is that will get 51 votes and that allows uh, the the majority to make the decision. So 51 votes at the end of the day and allows the minority to have meaningful opportunities to amend legislation. Um, and by the way, it may not just be changing the filibuster rule, it may be changing other rules of the Senate that together uh, create a body that can actually function again. And this also, in my view, this isn't about Democrats again. This is about whether we're going to be able to compete with the totalitarian government in China or not. You know, I've read, I mentioned earlier, we, we, the, the, the semiconductors, we, we talked or we, we started the pandemic here discovering that America was incapable of protecting itself because we no longer make masks or protective equipment here in the United States of America. We ended the pandemic with the realization that 85% of the semiconductors in this country or in this world are being produced by uh, in 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 uh, in Taiwan, and the economic policies that brought us here are not up to the task of answering the question: Can we compete with the Chinese government? And I would suggest they're not up to the task of answering the question: Can we create an economy that, when it grows, works for everybody, not just the top 10 percent? Mitch McConnell's version of obstruction, which has nothing to do with the way the Senate traditionally operated cannot be allowed to stand in the way of that if we're going to have a democracy that can compete, if we're going to have an economy that can actually work for every American. So I, I think it's long overdue that we figure out how to get through it. I don't know what is going to be required to get 51 votes. I'm trying to make sure that people in the caucus understand what the true history of the filibuster is so people can make a judgment about you know whether we're actually doing harm or saving the Senate, which is kind of how I would look at it. Um, and uh, and I think the legislation that you're talking about is vitally important, whether it's criminal justice reform, which has already passed the state of Colorado. We're the first legislature in America to pass modern police accountability legislation. And guess what? We did it without a filibuster. 
And I just, we have run out of time, but I just want to be I'm crystal sure, clear. Yeah. So are you in favor of eliminating the, the procedural hurdle altogether or just I'm reforming? I'm in favor of reforming it so we make it, make the Senate work the way the Senate needs to work. So that's what we have to figure out how to do. Senator, we have to leave it there. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate your time, especially during this crazy sprint before recess. It's crazy, but it's it's we got a lot going on, which is a lot better than the last four years. So, Jackie, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And everyone else, please join us tomorrow at 1230 Eastern Time when my colleague Paige Cunningham interviews the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Vivek Murthy. You can always head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about our upcoming programming. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.